What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to The Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe. And we'd like to firstly thank all of our incredible patrons and academates who are making this podcast possible. The five years we've been going now. And um, if you're interested in joining the Academy, the Bestseller Academy is open now for new applicants and you can get in for 2022. And talking of five years, Mark, it was five years ago, almost to the day, that we last had Mr. Michael Connolly on this podcast. Yes, it popped up on my Facebook memories as a treasured memory. So I'm very happy about that. But yes, a very, very special guest. Where do we start? I mean, Michael Connolly is the best-selling author of 36 novels, one work of nonfiction, over 80 million copies of his books sold worldwide, translated into 45 language. Language is one of the most successful writers working today, won countless awards, including the CWA's Diamond Dagger. His book Blood Work was directed by Clint Eastwood. Matthew McConaughey was Mickey Haller in The Lincoln Lawyer. He's been number one so many times we actually lost count. He's also executive producer of Bosch and Amazon Studios' original drama series based on his best-selling character, Harry Bosch, starring Titus Welliver. Bosch streams on Amazon Prime Video, and he's also the creator and host of the podcast, Murder Book. He's also a gentleman who is very generous with his time and advice for new writers, as we discovered when we first had him on the podcast five years ago. But some incredible things have happened since, not least his latest novel, The Dark Hours. Ladies and gentlemen, folks, please be upstanding for Mr. Michael Connolly. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thanks for uh, having me back. Oh, I thought you'd want pleasure. me back sooner in five years, but that I'll take you five years. <laughs> <laughs> and and Michael, the last time you were on the show, you may you may may remember this. You were, I think you you just done a book signing, and you're on you're in London, and a certain Mister Stay managed to somehow wangle a ride with you in your cab for fifteen minutes between. Uh, oh, what I want to know is, did he did he actually end up paying the fare for you in the end, or did he just disappear out? <laughs> Yeah, I think he jumped out while I was still moving. Yeah, yeah, rolled out, rolled out onto the the pavement. Um, you've got a fantastic new book out, uh, The Dark Hours, which is a Ballard and Bosch novel. You've got two of your great characters working together. Uh, you've got a killer striking on New Year's Eve, which I love because you've got this built-in ticking clock. Uh, what I love about this, and as with all your previous books. You write them as a chronicle of our times. There's references to the pandemic, social unrest, low morale and the LAPD. I know the LA riots have loomed over all the Harry Bosch books. So what were the, the big challenges with this story? Particularly, you know, you're looking at the role of the police these days. We've got Black Lives Matter uh, and, and issues such as that. How much of that is is boiling in your mind as you're creating a novel like this? Well, it's there a lot. 
Um, but the, I guess the challenge is to not let that overpower the story. Cause you know, at the end of the day, it's about this character, Renee Ballard and, and to a second degree, uh, Harry Bosch, but it's a Ballard narration. And, um, so you're riding with her through these stories and all those things that you mentioned, which in my opinion, add up to the title, the dark hours, um, it's the dark hours of American policing, if you ask me. Um, and, um, you know, you want to have that in there because that's what's happening. And I've done that all along. So why change after 35 novels that are reflecting what's happening in the real world in the year they're published? Um, I wasn't going to change that. So, so first of all, I had to include this in, to some degree. And then it was just about like turning it into an advantage, making these things, unfortunately, which in real life, they are obstacles to good police work. You know, this, the low morale, um, basically, you know, most of the police force mailing it in. And then you have a character like Ballard, who's, you know, her hallmark is being relentless when she's on a case. And so this is just one more obstacle um, that she has to get through. And uh, so that in, in a way, I turn it to my advantage because it makes me, it lets me show what kind of character she is, that she's not being pulled into this, quicksand um into this malaise that she's still uh, fighting the good fight and um you know so if you can use a real thing that's going on in society as an obstacle and you show how she gets through it i think you're you're connecting it to the reader because most of the people who read this book have not solved murders or caught rapists but they can connect on that level of fighting the good fight to get through every day in, in what has been, at least in the last year or so, some dark times. A lot of writers often are very kind of worried about time stamping their, their books in terms of um, events that are happening. What advice would you have for them, Michael? Because obviously, you know, just looking at the, the beginning of Dark House, there's lots of references to COVID and wearing masks and the like. And that really connected for me. How, how important is it for you to kind of use your books as almost like historical time points as well in terms of what's happening in the world? Well, I mean, every writer has to make that call. You know, and there's writers that are doing fabulous work where, where their characters never age and you can't really tell what time it is, uh, time of year, that kind of thing. Um, and that's fine. It's it's kind of like, what's that saying? Whatever floats your boat, um, you know, do what you want to do. I came to this from um, 14 years in journalism and, you know, I'm a journalist at heart, I think. Um, and so I use that. I, I report on what's going on in um, you know, maybe it's a small ball thing like the police department, but maybe it's a bigger thing like society um, um, beyond the stretches of Los Angeles. Um, that floats my boat to spend a year include like reflecting on what's going on right outside my window or right on the other side of the TV, the new screen. Um, and that keeps me plugged in as a writer. I'm not saying everybody has to do that. And you also have to think, um, that was very nice of you to say that connected you to my books right away. But some people are reading right now. Reading is up. Book sales are up, uh, you know, around the world because of COVID. It's a pandemic. More people are at home and more people are uh, deciding to get back into reading. But maybe they're trying to get away from COVID. And then they get in this, uh, into my book. And on the second page, some guy's pounding on her door, uh, her window of her car, and he's not wearing a mask. And they won't roll the window down. So it's very clear in this book. We're in the real world. And, you know, my 
top advice is just keep your head down and write the story you want to write. But you might want to step back and say, do people want to read that? Um, I didn't do that step back. I just decided to do what I always do. And that's reflect what's going on in the world in the year the book's published. You used a word to describe Ballard there, uh, relentless, which uh, is a word that came up in our previous interview. And it was your it's one of the greatest pieces of advice that you've given to writers, one we've repeated over and over again, which is to be relentless, to never give up. And it, it, and it, as Mr. D will tell you, it inspired us to do something very special. Yeah. Back in the original interview we did, Michael, with you, you talked, we talked about your writing habits and you talked about how you, you know, when you're working on something, you're writing every day, even if it was 15 minutes. And we launched actually, we, we kept hearing this from many, many successful authors. And we launched a, a writing challenge called the 200 word a day writing challenge. And the idea was, is that just 15 minutes a day, do 200 words. And and it's inspired over two, uh, 20 million words written over the last year. So <laughs> so just to show you like some of the little things, some of the little bits of advice you dropped into the last um, interview have inspired so many writers to write and, and people are absolutely... So firstly, massive thank you for, for, for that advice. Is that something that... You, you know, it's something you still do when you're working on a project. Is this right everyday mentality, this relentlessness, is it still part of your work? Yeah, it is. And um, <clears throat> because I'm involved in some TV shows based on my books, sometimes it's hard to get the 15 minutes, but I, but I stick to that rule. And I'm, I'm, I can't remember exactly what I said on that show five years ago, but, you know, that was advice passed to me. Uh, from a teacher um, when I was at the university, um, and uh, and that's it's really served me well. And and I probably said this on the show. It's because it keeps the story going in your head. It's not really about the fifteen minutes at your keyboard. It's about what went into your thinking in your creative processes before you got to the fifteen minutes. And and so I think it's you know it was passed on to me and. Um, uh, I pass on to you. I, I've talked about it a lot. And and it's funny because, you know, um, as Mark said, the, uh, the, uh, the people connect to relentlessness. We want to be relentless and fierce in wh whatever we're doing. And so I write about these detectives. I think those two words uh, describe Bosch and Ballard pretty well. But, you know, and I think people can connect on that level because we want to be, you know, whatever you do, whether you're a writer or something else, you want to be relentless at it. And so I think that's a, a good uh, connecting point um, to to uh, for me to have said five years ago. I'm surprised I said something uh, that seems smart. <laughs> <laughs> does that does that come does that relentlessness come from your journalism background? Because it's it's you know it's very easy to be fobbed off as a journalist. No comment, whatever. You you have to keep knocking on doors, picking up phones, uh, pursuing a lead. Is that where that comes from? Yeah, and I was fortunate. Um, you know the. Uh, I got out of the business before it really kind of downsized because of basically news consumption moving to the internet. So when I was in the business, it was pretty fat and happy and profitable. And I worked in cities that were where there were competitive new, other newspapers. So I did it for 14 years and it was competitive that whole time. And so that does keep you moving and it does keep you knocking on doors and we're making the extra call, trying to get something that, you know, the other guy across the street and the other newspaper didn't get. And uh, so, yeah, there's there's I think that is where I got a lot of my work ethic and possibly the uh, the idea of 
going at this in a relentless um, manner, you know, because if you're writing a book, you know, some people are fast writers. I think I am, but you know, even if it takes a year, there's something built in that's leisurely about that. Like, you know, if you have a bad day, you can say, well, I got, you know, 300 more days before my deadline. Um, you need something else that powers you through. And maybe it's the story. Maybe it's the character that you just can't wait every morning to write about that. Um, or, you know, but you got to find a means of, um, of turning on that, that DNA, that relentless DNA. On that, on that note, Michael, um, maybe using the, the dark hours as an example, how, so many books now into your career, what do you most love and enjoy about the process now of writing? Well, I, I love the exploration of character, especially because I come back to characters. And so every time it's like, uh, the the question or the challenge is what what's new this time because uh, a character if you're doing series stuff you can't the character can't be static but the book something new has to come out so that's that's the main thing but I often look for things that um, just intrigue me or I find that are neat about like this city Los Angeles or something like that in the dark hours there's a whole strand of investigation that involving streetlights and um, it's all based on, on real stuff. And, and that was a reporter in me. I went and looked into this because in Los Angeles, there's so many, there's no uniformity in streetlights. You can go two blocks and the streetlights look different. And so I started exploring that and, and, and found a way of connecting it to um, a clue path for Ballard. And so you know, it's not a big thing in the book, but, but when I, you know, I'm, I'm already past that book and, you know, I finished writing it almost a year ago and I'm on to the next one. So when I look back and I have a, a real good, um, which I think serves me amnesia when it comes to my, when I move on to the next book, I'm, I'm in that tunnel. I'm in that. Um, uh, and that's all I'm thinking about. And so it's weird because you know, I'll be well into a book and then the previous book is published and I'm doing things like the best bestseller experiment and so forth. And I have to remember that book I wrote and um, I've kind of blanked it out. And so when I look back on this book, I've been doing a few interviews in the last week that keeps coming up how much fun that was to research and to go into neighborhoods, take photos, um, go to the Bureau of street lighting in Los Angeles, things like that. So usually there's a plot element that really plugs me in and then, but the priority or the, or the main, main element um, is, is uh, what am I going to do with the character this time that's different? Talking of tunnels, Michael, what point does uh, the LA cop dramas um, become called gridlocked and they can't catch any criminals because they're just sitting in traffic? All day long? <laughs> is, it, is it pretty bad right now? Um, well, you know, it was amazing. This place was amazing in the middle of a pandemic when you could go anywhere in like 10 minutes. And now it's pretty much back to usual. Um, but you, it's funny. I always say Los Angeles is a very tough place to visit, but it's better if you live here. You appreciate it more. And, and one of the things you learn is how to get around. Um, and so that you're not sitting on a freeway that's not moving. Um, you know, not everyone can do that or no one, and not everybody has that facility. But and I have a job that's lucky where I don't have a routine, like I have to drive somewhere at nine every day or something. But, you know, you make do with what you got. And um, and, you know, I really love the city and uh, I'm lucky that 
in my job where I work from home, I'm going out to do research or meetings or whatever I'm doing. Um, I can, I can, I can kind of control my world in terms of traffic, uh, where others can't. Dark Hours is another crossover with Ballard and Bosch, and I know Mickey Haller's in, in, interacted with these characters too. You've created a Michael Connolly universe, you know, long before the Marvel Cinematic Universe made it fashionable. Did that come organically, or was it something you planned, or was there a point where you thought, I should do this and, and make this bigger? Definitely was no plan. Um you know, you, 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 I wrote the Harry first Harry Bosch book, not even knowing if it would be published. So I wasn't thinking like 30 years later, I hope I'm, I'm writing about this guy because I'm coming up on 30 years and January is 30 wow. years since the first That's Bosch incredible. book. And so the, you can't have that kind of foresight. But the one thing I did was um, name him Harry Bosch, uh, really Hieronymus Bosch. I named him after a painter that that did works of art that had all kinds of stuff going on in all corners of the paintings. And, you know, and, and the signature work is called The Garden of Earthly Delights. And, and that was really why I named him Bosch because of that painting. And I, I viewed Los Angeles as kind of the modern day Garden of Earthly Delights with all of its temptations and all of its fall, failings and fallings. And so that, at you know, at some point, uh, back basically four books in, I quit being a journalist because I had signed a contract that I knew I could go about three or four years uh, just writing books, and and I either make it or break it in those four years. And so that was when I started thinking about an overall mosaic where all these stories would be interconnected. You know, it was the Bosch books don't stand separately from the Lincoln lawyer books or the or the Jack McAvoy books on some level, all my books are connected. Um, some very minor in minor ways, but some in quite large ways with character crossovers and so forth. So it was about four or five books in where I thought, well, if I can keep doing this, this is what I should do. Um, you know, show a city that's evolving. The characters might be different, but the city's always LA. And, and so it's really, I'm going to show the city evolving, write a book a year set in the year it's published. And, um, almost like a anthropological study of mm. a city. And then these characters are attached to that, um, that portrait. And, um, you know, yeah, I just, I just got lucky, but, you know, I think, you know, like I keep bringing up this 30 years thing, <laughs> you know, it's, I think it's a pretty good, uh, pretty decent 30 year study of a city. Yeah. How are you keeping track of that? Because you spoke of that amnesia, which I can relate to. If you try and think back to what you wrote two books ago, it's difficult, but when you're writing it, I, I, are you, do you have some sort of database or reference you can go to to say oh hang on did this character actually do this thing back then or or do you just rely on your memory for that i pretty much rely on memory and then you know um there'll be enough people to let you know if you get something wrong on the internet but no i, I don't have any kind of master database like i kind of wish i did but I, I, like i said nothing is really planned you know um and so like to keep a database would be to indicate I knew this was going to go on for 30 years and I just did not. Um, but I've had, I've only had two copy editors over the 30 years. And, and, and the first one started kind of like the Bible where she collected all these facts and then the next one um, carried it on from there. So 
I'll turn in a book every time I turn in a book and, and they'll say, well, actually in this book, you said this about this person or this person had green eyes, not brown, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, so I'm lucky that I, that I don't have to spend a whole lot of time worrying about that stuff because someone will will find out for me. And also I have a kind of an Internet researcher um, who part of his job is to have all my books in digital format. And I can just tell him, do this, do a keyword search through all my books for this thing and see what I've written about it before. And, and that works pretty well as, you know, for me as, as well. Wow. 30 years, Michael, let's just stop and take a breath for a minute and reflect on that. That's pretty phenomenal. (laughs) (laughs) At what point during those 30 years, would you say that things changed for you? Because I know for many authors listening to this, you know, they, they dream of reaching the level that you have and the audience that you have. At what point in those 30 years, can you remember like a specific moment where you thought, this is actually really taking off? Like readers are really engaging. This, this could be for real. Can you, can you, well, I, had some, um, I had some markers, you know, um, I'm not an overnight success by any means, but my first four books had incremental growth, growth. So I didn't have a downturn. And they were all Bosch books. And then I was able to, as I said, uh, quit my day job as a journalist. And um, and I knew I could go three or four years unless things continued to progress and I could go even further. Um, but so I decided so I'm leaving the business of journalism. I'd write about a journalist. So I, my fifth book was called The Poet. And it was a, a straight out thriller. Um, I, I know publishers have a hard time figuring out how to market. Um, series fiction because like it's the fourth harry bosch book jump on the train now people are predisposed i mean you don't you know you don't go see uh the third harry potter movie first you know (laughs) what i mean so so they always have an issue with that and that's what i sensed early on and um so when i gave him this thing that was unconnected at that point later on in in a sequel i would connect it to harry the harry bosch books but this stood by itself and and it was a pretty good fast moving thriller i believe and uh if you give that to the publishing machine they know what to do with it so so that one really um increased my profile tremendously and so then i was suddenly on another plane and so i would my pattern became write a bosch book and then write something new and so there's about a four or five book period there where i was alternating bosch and something new and and that just kept pumping up my uh, my uh, sales and my level and everything. And so it, it was probably, I mean, it's, it, again, it wasn't real fast, but in 2006, so halfway through my current career, basically, I published The Lincoln Lawyer and um, and that book really did well. And that was, a, I thought that was a, like, I'm going to be able to do this for the rest of my life. And so that was a very significant moment. When, when you look back on the last 30 years, do you sometimes pinch yourself as to what's happened with your career? Does it, does, does it feel real to you? No, it feels very surreal because, um, again, you can't see any of this happening. I mean, I don't think a lot of people go into uh, writing books thinking like I'm going to be wealthy and I'm going to do. They do it because they want to tell stories. And that's why I did it. Um, 
You know, I never foresaw anything like this. I always thought I'd have a day job. You know, I always thought I'd be a reporter and this would be stuff I'd do on the side. Um, so, so yeah, it's been a, an amazing journey. A couple of years ago on the Bosch TV show, we didn't adapt the books in order. We took, we took them, we took what we needed, like, because like the first season, we really wanted to have Bosch on an emotional journey. So we used the book that spoke to that more so. And so it was four or five seasons in before we got to adapting my first book, The Black Echo. And that book opens, um, before we meet Harry Bosch, we have a preface kind of where um, a, a kid named Sharky, nicknamed Sharky, happens to be um, a witness to a murder. And then we meet Bosch and Bosch catches that murder and he, and he looks for Sharky as the witness. So when I, so that was the very first chapter of the very first book I wrote. And when I wrote it, I had no idea if I'd ever get published. So 20, about 24 years later, they're filming that scene. And that was just, that was just an amazing night uh, to think, you know, and I just walked around by myself. I usually am very collegial with all the people working on the show, but I was on the outskirts just watching them film this because it really hit me like, what a what a journey it's been and an unexpected journey now here i am almost a quarter century after i wrote five pages i didn't think anyone other than my wife and mother might be the only ones to read now they're filming it all these years later it's pretty strange it's a pretty strange trip it's been <laughs> bosch uh, on uh, prime was arguably i think the first really big streaming hit made for streaming hit. I, I worked at Orion at the time and I know I had to explain to some of them what streaming was. They were like, well I have to watch it on a laptop. It's like, no, no, this is this is this is gonna be great. It's now Prime's longest longest running series. And it's so cinematic. Each episode looks like a movie. It has this just fantastic quality to it. Could you have imagined what it what it's now become? No, I mean you can, you know, my whole career is, I can't imagine. And this is just one, <laughs> one section of it that also was beyond, but, you know, I also, I, I give myself credit because as you said, no one knew who, what this was. I happen to be, I'm a, an insomniac. And so I happen to be an early adapter of streaming and Amazon, before they made any shows, you could go on there and watch old movies all through the night and that kind of thing. And I love streaming, you know, it's, watching when you want to watch what you want to watch. And so when they came around and offered um, to do it with Bosch, it was going to be their first one hour drama. They had one other show, a half hour comedy. And so it was a risky thing. And so many people said, what, what are you doing? And, um, but I knew because it was in its infancy that we were going to be let alone to do what we wanted to do. And, uh, and that was the key to our success, I think. Um, Amazon's quite different now. They got dozens and dozens of shows. They got dozens and dozens of people telling the showrunners what they want and all that. But back in those early days, Amazon Studios uh, was two people. That was it. And one was always in meetings, and the other one was the guy we talked to. And that, and we, and he would just say, "Okay, sounds good." When we said what we were going to do, <laughs> it's so different now. But we got in early. And by the time it changed, we were already kind of established and you don't mess with something that's, that's working. And so it was actually, it was a lot of fun to be in those early stages of uh, the streaming bonanza. It's almost like you're an original streaming 
uh, original gangster in the streaming world. Because we were, Mark and I were talking before this interview about like just let's just future cast 200, 200 years into the future and we're all <laughs> long gone. Like when they look back at the history of how streaming started and, and Bosch is going to be right there. And the fact that Bosch was a great series, obviously partly changed the course of streaming history. I mean, if, if both Netflix and, and, and Amazon had gone with really bad shows to begin with, maybe streaming would have never have happened. So it's kind of interesting to reflect on, and you ever thought about the kind of the bigger picture as to how the, the part that Bosch plays in the history of what's happening in the world right now, technologically wise. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, thank you for that. I think you're giving us too much credit, but, um, but, but it was different TV. It was different from what you saw on TV. That was what was cool about it. And, uh, you know, the look and the quality, it was like a mini movie every episode. And so I think um, it helped establish what you could do uh, in streaming if you had the support of a studio. You know, it's not to say that Amazon Netflix don't make bad shows. Some of the shows are not that good. But, um, you know, so it, it really comes down to individuals and who you get on your team and things like that. Um, you know, so you a few minutes ago, you said, do I pinch myself? I pinch myself a lot about things that just happened uh, that were luck. Or I know I, I'm a believer in that Mark Twain thing that the harder you work, the luckier you get. But I have had a lot of luck and I've worked hard, but but still things had to happen. I mean, the whole look of Bosch is because we talked to a producer who had produced a lot of Michael Mann movies and was always traveling the world, um, never home that much. And he, he said like, well, TV is getting to be good now, you know, with uh, HBO and Sopranos and, and so forth. I want to get into TV. And we got this guy and, and he's like responsible for the look of the show. And it looks like a Michael Mann film. Yeah. Um, and uh you know, and so that what a lucky break. If we gotten somebody else, we might not be talking about eight years of Bosch, you know. And now you've got a uh, a new series, a spin-off series that you announced the other day, the Bosch Legacy, which I believe the first season is adapting the wrong side of g- goodbye. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And we, we already filmed it. Uh we just finished filming and we're in post-production. So that'll be out, you know, in the first I don't I don't have a date or anything in the first half of uh of the new year now obviously with all the success michael there's people out there writers out there thinking you know you probably show up every day and and great words just flow but to just kind of humanize (laughs) humanize your own situation there must still be days where you sit down and write and you think that's no good and it's in the bin does that happen often does it still happen yeah it happens it's going to happen to everybody but um you know it's uh, you know, the longer you do something, the better you are at it. So I do think it happens less for me. Uh, I have a better sense of where, what I'm doing as I go into every day of writing. Um, but also, I'm sure I talked about this. I'm To me, everything happens after the first draft, you know, in rewriting. Rewriting is everything. And so if I do have a bad day, I just keep soldiering on and get through that bad day because I know I'm going to come back to these words and these pages and this chapter at least two or three more times. And, you know, and, and I, and, you know, all writers are their own harshest critic. And, you know, if you have a rough patch, but you power through when you come back around on a rewrite, you're going to recognize that rough patch right away. You're going to know this was, Oh, this was when I had those bad days or whatever. 
and then you you know put extra emphasis on making it better. So I, I don't get all concerned. <coughs> excuse me. I don't get all concerned when I have a bad day. I just soldier through and know I'll be back to win the battle next time. <laughs> I'm using all these war metaphors. It makes it sound like, <laughs> you know, it's just me in a room by my, uh, with my laptop. It's not that big a deal. <laughs> we have some, uh, we have some listener questions for you, Michael, if you're happy. And, uh, you know, these, these are all about digging into, into the craft. And um, some of these cover stuff that we talked about last time, but I'm wondering if much has changed uh, since we last spoke, particularly now you've worked on TV. But Christopher Wills says, um, now that your books have been filmed, do you write with that in mind? And how does that manifest in your writing? So are you thinking of TV shows or are you able to focus just on the novel as a thing in itself? Yeah, I don't really think... It's funny... Um... The, sh- the the TV show has influenced me in a great way, but not that way. I don't write thinking this will be great when they adapt it, or this this will be this will be a great movie or whatever. I I just don't think that way. But I always thought visually anyway. So I think my books are visual, and that appeals to um, uh, you know film and TV makers. But that's the way I've always written. But um, what's influenced me goes the other way. Um, on the TV shows, I mean, the Bosch books, at least the first half of the Bosch books were all Bosch uh, POV, Bosch centric. Um, he, you were in his head through the whole, through every page. And then you get on a TV show and you can't do that. You have to spread the story out, storytelling out and build up lives of other characters. And consequently on the show, some of the characters have these rich, deep, um, past and 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 full lies and in my books they're like paper thin as paper and so we've improved the books in that regard but it's also taught me i i don't know if it's taught was the wrong word it's also influenced me in that i'm doing more books where narrations are shared like bosch and ballard and things like that um and i think that's a direct um influence from the tv show excellent Excellent stuff. Um, also, a question from Chris, from Christopher. It, it, he says, it appears from my research that you don't plot a lot in advance. So before you start writing, what do you need to know about the story you are about to write? So do you think that's an insult? <laughs> it, it appears I don't plot my books. <laughs> right. I think he means plotting in advance, outlining in advance. So Yeah, no, I, I need the beginning and end. I, I need to... Uh, I, I ruminate about stuff sometimes for years, you know, and I have, a, you know, and I'm always thinking in terms of how a book it begins and, and where it leads to. And, and the middle part is what I don't plot out. But again, um, it, it could be a matter of semantics. You know, um, my first drafts are, are pretty, they're really long and overwordy and um, need a lot of work. And so you could say oh, that is a very over detailed outline. And then from that, I sculpt out the book in the second and third go throughs. So, you know, the, I know there's people that outline in great detail. There's people that don't outline. But at the end of the day, there's some kind of framework that you're attaching the story to. And, uh, you know, you know, so so when I say I don't outline and I see what happens in the middle, that could be a form of outlining. 
Is we it, chuckle, is Michael, because we uh, we once got some very wise advice from Ben Aronovich on this show when we discussed with him that we'd written a 50,000-word outline. <laughs> he said, that's he a book. Was like, he, was, he says, I write, I write books shorter than that. But uh, I think, it's good to hear. How, it's good to hear. And, and how reassuring for the listeners to hear that Michael Connolly's first drafts need a lot of work. That yeah, is absolutely. It's just, you know, that's so heartwarming to hear that. That's so relatable. <laughs> I mean, that connects with the prior question about you know, hard when you hit rough spots, that's the first draft. That's where you got to soldier through. And, and so sometimes those are pretty ugly scenes and p- ugly pages. And, but, you know, you know, maybe cause I've been doing it for 30 years. I, and my confidence has grown a lot since the beginning. I just, I just know I, I can make that stuff better. Um, second or third time around. And it's interesting because books get shorter each, each, I'm not adding. I mean, I add here and there, but overall, I'm subtracting. Uh, you know, I'm, I really believe that less is more when it comes to editing. And uh, so I usually like write about 110,000, then it gets down to about 105, and then it gets down to like 98 or 100 when I turn it in. Brilliant. Do you, having, having written so many books now, Michael, do you have a specific ritual or way of celebrating finishing a book? Yeah, by starting the next one. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say that. I really thought you were going to say don't, that. I don't have a ritual, but in a way, that's what happens because I don't know. I don't know why this is, but somehow when I'm on the the you know the final days, I'm I'm wrapping it up. And remember, I usually don't start anything till I know how it's going to end. So by the time I'm really wrapping it up, I somehow I start getting thoughts about what I'm going to do next, and so. I usually don't take breaks between books. I usually take breaks between drafts of a book, you know? Okay. Uh, so like if I was going to take a vacation, it wouldn't be between books. It would be between the first and second draft of a book. So you don't plan around the kids' holidays. You plan around <laughs> You plan around when the, when the book's finishing. I used to have to try to deal with that, but I, I yeah. wrote on so many vacations. Uh, I have one kid, and she's up and out of the house now, older. And, uh, so now I, I, everything's planned around me. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that you say that you, you celebrate by starting a new book because there is actually a – there's an excitement, isn't there? The the idea of starting something new and the relentlessness of having to finish something you've been working on for so long. So I guess in a way that is a reward, a kind of a blank page where you can create something from scratch. Is that really where that comes from? Yeah, I think so. I mean, because you get so deep and, you know, I usually do uh, three drafts and uh, you're so deep into it that it's, it, it is like a, a breath, of, breath of fresh air to be just writing something else. And so it, Rather than like write letters or or catch up on stuff, I've always tried to get the next book going. And sometimes this actually happened this year. I I finished uh, the dark hours and started writing the next book right away. And I only wrote like two chapters of it. And then I um, kind of slowed down, and got involved in television stuff and so forth. And and the uh, velocity of writing on it slowed down a bit. It, I got into that fifteen minutes a day thing. Fantastic, fantastic. We've got uh, a, a couple of questions that are kind of similar, so I'll ask them both and then see what you think of this. So Robin Sartes asks, I would love to know how Michael keeps series characters fresh and exciting. And Ed Howard asks, he says, in terms of craft and recommendations for character development when writing a series or writing multiple books with the same pr- protagonist, 
so like we said, you've been at this 30 years now, um, 30 years of Bosch. Um, how how do you keep that fresh and exciting? And and, and you know, how are you how 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 are you keeping uh, coming up with, with new challenges for these characters? I don't know. I think it's like an instinctive thing. I didn't, there's no like procedure I do. Um, but I do have that rule, which I've said a few times today, um, that a character has, can't be static. Um, book the book, there's gotta be something new. I mean, obviously it's the same person, same DNA. So you have, you've already established things about this character in this book. So in the next book, you got to establish something new, uh, or something additional. Um, I always think in terms of my books moving forward and backward at the same time, you, you move forward with the character through a case and what's going on in the present, but you're, you're always trying to fill in something about their past. Um, you know, that it, that's informing whatever's going on in the, in the current story. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, it's a hard thing to answer. It's it, it just, it's an instinctive thing saying things have to change. Um, you know, uh, we see a lot of people that, not, I mean, not a lot of people, there, there's a lot of writers that are, are really good and then they stick with that that what they've done that's really good and don't want to change it up because for fear that maybe people won't like it or something. I don't know. I, I hate speaking for other writers, but you can see some stuff in their work. And I just feel that um, to keep people going uh, with you, traveling with you on these stories and this character, uh, you know, things should change. So like, like Renee Bauer, who's the protagonist of the new book, She's only been, I've only been writing about her about five years, I think the four books that she's in. And, you know, when we first meet her four or five years ago, she's, she's sleeping in a tent on the beach. And when you meet her in the uh, uh, dark hours, she has an apartment, she's looking for a dog. Um, you know, uh, she's, she's just a, a different person than she was when we first met her five years ago. I guess as well, because you're setting it, in real world, in real time, the world is giving you challenges that you might not have. I mean, you know, if you said to your publisher, "I'm going to put a pandemic into, uh, you know, into the background of a novel," they might have said, "Hang on, Michael, this isn't a science fiction novel." You know, it's, I guess that kind of helps. Yeah, no, I mean, that, you can call that the, my crutch that I I get away without being a creative genius by just taking from the real world, <laughs> and it's true. I mean, you know, again, I. I I have a fancy, fancier way of saying that, and that is that, you know, I'm a journalist at heart, so I want to report on what's going on in the world. But you could flip that and say you're just taking what's uh, going on in the real world, real world, you know, to create your uh, afflictions and, and uh, obstacles on your character. That's fascinating. With with your journalistic background, Michael, I mean, if if you, we always think about milestones and things that happen in our lives that we don't know what that will have, the knock on effect will be. But do you look back at the journalism time of your life and think, if I hadn't have been a journalist, I may not have had this career as an author? Yeah, I mean, that's one of those things that can really freak you out because I know that's the case. I know when I'm what I've accomplished or what I've got going is all founded in those years uh, because I spent so much time in police stations and with real detectives and, and just kind of gaining an experience and a knowledge of, of how things work. Granted, this was long before they even used DNA and all that. So the world has changed and I've had to keep up with it. 
But the basic, it always can, all the DNA and procedure, all that's window dressing on character. And I think what I got was um, character from, from watching real people do this work. And I don't know if I would have gotten that if, um, you know, I was a English lit teacher, you know, or I took a different road. Every writer takes the road that they need to take. And I, I needed to take that road uh, to be able to do what I'm doing now, to be sitting right here right now. Speaking of careers, I've, I've got another listener question from Laura Shepard. And Laura, I know, is a practicing lawyer in the UK. I think she's a barrister in the UK. So this is a nice technical question. She's asking about you know, the Mickey Haller books. Uh, how do you keep the tension and mystery in the story when a court case is at the end of the investigation when all of the evidence has been gathered? So, you know, in legal, every kind of all the cards are on the table there. How do you, how do you keep that tension going? Well, I think there's built in drama uh, because it all all that stuff, as she says, it all ends up in this box, the courtroom, the stage. And it's a place where, um, you know, character really prevails. Um, And, you know, the trick with writing fiction about it is to hide evidence. In other words, have stuff not be known till it comes out in that room, in that box. And, And, you know. I, tr- I try to be as accurate as I can, but the whole court system in almost every country is designed so that when you go into that box and you finally go to trial, no, everyone knows everything. And so the challenge is to figure out um, how to hide something from the reader or, or Haller hides from his opponent, that kind of thing. Or it happened, it comes out of what, ha- what the action is happening in the courtroom. And so it becomes fresh, a fresh new aha moment. But, but when it comes to the the lawyer stuff, that is the big challenge. I mean, I think inherently the stakes are really high in a trial. There's a built in tension, but you have to find ways of making, of twisting it and making it even more um, full of tension by, uh, you know, the actions of your characters. Do you approach the storytelling in the Mickey Haller books different to the the uh, Ballard and Bosch books because of the, that legal procedure element to them? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have that. You Often like a Bosch or Ballard book will come up, will, will come to me, you know, because of uh, some kind of character thing I want to do. Um, it's occurred to me it's time to do this with Ballard, put her in an apartment and and make her vulnerable in a new way. Um, with, with, uh, Haller, I, I have a good sense of that character. I think I got that character nailed down, but I'm usually, and I talk to a lot of defense attorneys, two in particular, who were the models for Haller in the first place, um, are still practicing lawyers and I still talk to them. And I'm, and I often look for something that happens in that box. Like, tell me stories about when things went wrong or when, uh, uh, you know, something surprised you in a courtroom. And, and I often build those stories from some kind of legal situation. So very much using the journalistic kind of approach and that you're still interviewing a lot of people and looking for where the threads and ideas. So that kind of really is carried on, isn't it, underneath? Oh, yeah. Um, I do that all the time. And, you know, I guess it's classified as research, but most of these people I've known for years and years and they're social friends. And, you know, it's not just... I'm not there with a notebook like a reporter to say, tell me about this. 
Um, I'm usually having drinks or I'm having breakfast. I'm, you know, there's, there's socializing going on. And uh, then I'll ask a few of my questions, but uh, a lot of these people, you don't have to ask questions. They just tell you stories. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, as I say, I'm not a creative genius, but I think I do have a genius for throwing out a net and getting all kinds of stuff. And then I'm the guy who goes through the net and decides this guy, I throw this back over the, into the water. This is an anecdote. This is a, uh, uh, a runner that could go maybe 50 pages or this is the book that I can do. A, I could build a whole book around this idea. And, um, and, and, you know, and that's the journalism. Um, that's a, a procedure that's, that's been with me since I was a journalist. And, and that's really how I work. I love it. I love it. It's like, uh, it's like you're an, you're actually a fisherman at heart and that's the process in which you can, <laughs> you can pull out all of the, the, the best catches, so to speak. That's brilliant stuff. I grew up in Florida and I did a lot of fishing and, you know, I was actually even proficient at throwing a net for a little while there. But um, but you, you bring it up and you dump it on the deck and you look through it and make sure some stuff is even uh, poisonous or sharp. Um, you know, some stuff is great bait. You know, you kind of go through it and you throw a lot overboard because it's not going to work for you. But But you keep other stuff. Excellent. Metaphor of the year, folks. Metaphor of the year. I've got, I've got one last uh, listener question from Lynn Clark. She says, I love the interaction between Bosch and Hala. Any more of those on the horizon? Yeah, definitely. I don't plan too far ahead. Like, I know what I'm writing next, and it's going to be another, uh, I guess, the dark hours you could call it Ballard and Bosch because she's the protagonist. The next one's going to be a Bosch and Ballard because Bosch will be the yeah. one. But yeah, no, I'm. My answer to those kind of questions is it really you're saying, are you done with any of these characters? And I'm not. So I, I can definitely see where uh, uh, Bosch and Haller will cross paths uh, again some way. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. And, and Michael, with the success of the books and the number of books you've now written and the career that you've had, and again, reflecting on the 30 years, is there anything that you're still harboring to achieve within your career, something different or, 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 you know, a different angle or some different technology that you're kind of looking at. Is there anything there? Um, not really. I mean, the, the one thing I'm hoping to accomplish, I've had two movies made on my books, but I had nothing to do with them. And, and you know, and I got through unscathed. In fact, I think the Lincoln Lawyer movie is very good. I really loved it. And um, but I again, I I was luck. Uh, I I picked the right producer basically to sell it to, and he did a good job with it and, and got all these good people involved, um, including Matthew McConaughey. But again, I had nothing to do with it. I'm very much involved in the TV shows I'm involved in uh, that that are coming from my books. But I, so I guess what's left off of my list of things I want to write, um, is a, is a film. I like to write a film. And so I, the, in more recent years, I've, uh, as I've been comfortable and, and happy with what's going on in the TV world, I've been looking to do, uh, a film. And, um, and so I, I wrote a book a couple of years ago uh, called fair warning, which is the reporter Jack uh, McAvoy's uh, series. And so I'm working on a script for that for uh, a producer, and I'm hoping uh, uh, that possibly my final thing in Hollywood would be a film that I've written. 
I love it. I love it. That's complete the reverse of Mark Stay here, who started doing films and then wanted to write a book. So yeah. it's kind of like you're kind of crossing paths. It's brilliant. I'll see Excellent you at the movies. Stuff. Fantastic. Wow. Okay. Shall we wrap things up then? I think we will. Michael, I, I just want to say thank you so much for being with us again five years on, and we promise we won't leave it another five until we speak to you again. <laughs> but um, we also just wanted to, you know, I think it's really important. We, you know, we, we get to speak to some incredible authors um, on this show. And it's really important, I think, to take a moment just to kind of acknowledge the career that you've had so far. Um, and not just, and obviously this is a writing podcast. I mean, the, the the millions of readers who you've entertained for millions of hours, whether it's through your books and whether it's through the, the, the TV shows and the movies. Um, but I also want to just acknowledge the millions, or I mean, millions, maybe thousands, definitely hundreds of thousands of writers that you've inspired, because we all know as writers that we read a book and we get inspired and want to write. So I just want to acknowledge and thank you on behalf of the writing community for all those unknowns out there that you won't probably have never heard of, um, of writers that you've influenced, or maybe some people have read one of your books and they've written their first ever crime or thriller novel afterwards. So um, thank you for all of the dedication and work you've put in and, and that the value that that's been felt by the writing community. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks for saying that. Um, it's interesting that, you know, I've been inspired over my career by people I've never met, you know, just because I've been inspired by their words and their writing. And uh, so I know how that can work. Um, and so if, if my books have helped anyone, that that's great. Um, that's a great um, compliment. But what I like the most about what you said just now, you said my career so far. So I appreciate that. <laughs> I think I still have some left because I've been getting a lot of... Uh, Wow, 30 years and uh, elder statesman or OG. <laughs> but, um, but, um, but yeah, I still feel like I have more to do and, and maybe there'll be some more uh, inspiration from that. It's when they start giving you Lifetime Achievement Awards, Michael. That's when you need to, <laughs> you know, just remind them there's plenty more gas in the tank. <laughs> I was supposed to get one this year, which I was, you know, concerned about, but luckily the convention... <laughs> was uh, canceled because of COVID. And, and uh, so, so I haven't joined that class of uh, <laughs> career achievement wrap-ups. Do you know what? The beauty about being a writer though, Michael, is retirement is a myth. There's no such thing as retirement. You can, you can try and stop writing, but writing will never leave you. So we're certainly looking forward to all the extra books that are coming our way from your writing desk, Michael. So Absolutely brilliant. And um, best of luck, obviously, with The Dark Hours. It's been it's out now, folks. If you want to get a copy of it, you know where to go. And um, and Michael, just one, one last question for you. Is there one piece of advice? We asked you this last time. I'm curious. Any piece of advice that you've learned in the last five years you'd like to pass on to writers um, as something to keep people inspired if they're really struggling right now? Um, I would just, I kind of said it earlier, um, just keep your head down. I mean, that's my challenge now, because I'm involved in a bunch of different things um, from podcasts to TV shows to books, is to keep your head down and, you know, write the story you want to write. Don't be buffeted by the winds of uh, what other people are doing. You know, don't lick your finger and hold it up to the wind. Just keep your head down and, and write your story. 
Fantastic advice. Folks, if you've been inspired by this episode, please spread the word. Tell your writer friends. Tell your Michael Connolly fan friends. Uh, subscribe, rate, and review to your podcatcher of choice. Uh, so you can, And I'll put a, a link in the show notes so you can check out our earlier episode with Michael as well. Um, and you can find us on social media at Bestseller Experiment. Twitter and Instagram is at Bestseller XP. Michael, you crop up on... Uh, I certainly I follow you on Instagram, certainly. Uh, you're on social media quite a bit, aren't you? Yeah, I have. Um, I'm not that good at it, but I have, I have Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Fantastic. We'll put links to those in the show notes too. But yes, the Dark Hours out now. And look, if if this is the first time you've come across Michael Conley, you've got 36 other books out there. You are in for such a treat. Uh, a whole world of page turning, thrilling fiction there, uh, which you absolutely love. Um, Michael, thank you so much for speaking to us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. So it's a goodbye from Mark 1. A goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.